Hey there, it's Nick Terzo, and this is The Radical. My guest this week is both a Emmy and Grammy winner. Additionally, he is an award-winning documentary director and author. His book, It Came Out of Memphis, was just re-released on its 25th anniversary by Jack White's Third Man Publishing. We will discuss the book and Memphis's enormous contributions to rhythm and blues, combating segregation, the amazing recording studio Sun and Stacks, and even pro wrestling. We also go deep into his Emmy-winning documentary, Best of Enemies, about the debates between William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal during the 1968 elections. This is a fascinating conversation with author and documentary maker, Robert Gordon. Next up, my conversation with Robert Gordon. Welcome, Robert. Hey, Nick. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to have you on the show. I read your book this week, which is odd because it's the 25th anniversary of It Came From Memphis. Um, and I don't know what I was doing in 95, but I did not read it when it first came out. Yeah, I've got your failing grade on the pop quiz here. We need to speak with you about that. <laughs> call me in. Call me in. <laughs> um, look, you've had an interesting past that started at a very young age. Um, you know, in the book itself, <laughs> in the book itself, it talks about you know you're attending a Rolling Stones concert there, yeah. which for me fascinates me that the Rolling Stones played in Memphis in the '70s. That's like a weird thought to me today. Um, oh, Nick, come on! I, no, I, we even had it more. Fun. I love Memphis. Are you kidding? But I have a feeling they'd come to Nashville today and not come to Memphis. Just come commercially. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's actually the thing is that, you know, Keith really cares and Mick too, I believe. I know Keith a little more. They would come here and try to book a day off so they could go meet the people, the old blues guys they admired. You know, the more I learned about them, the more I appreciated the sincerity of, can we call it the sincerity of their effort? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just find it fascinating because it's a little bit of your origin story in the first part of the book of you being a teenager going to the show. Yeah, and, yeah. this was my first book. For one thing, I wasn't sure how to, you know, write a book. There's a lot of names in the book. There's a lot of events, you know, and it's in part because it's a biography of a kind of of a creative process. It's the biography of, an, of a cultural collision in Memphis that occurred between two diverse groups of people, young post-beatnik proto-hippies and older uh, African-American blues artists. And so you got a number of people on each side. And I really wanted to get into the nitty gritty of like, where was the where were the friendships made and how was the information exchanged? Like who sat where and where was the table? You know, so it took me into coffee houses. It took me into, uh, you know, the Memphis Country Blues Festival, this little sort of uh, ad hoc organization that put on these festivals. It just took me into a lot of details. So as I was in, embarking on the book, I realized I needed, I, I kind of wanted to create in the first chapter, a plane of events. You know, two points makes a line, three points make a plane. And so I told about, how I encountered, let's see, I'm trying to remember how it opens. It opens with me at the Stones concert. So that's where I meet Furry Lewis, yes. right? I'm 14 and I hear, I remember turning around in the audience. My back, my back was to the stage because no one had been on that damn stage for like hours. It was the 4th of July, it was hot <laughs> as hell, outdoors. And I was looking for my friend who was supposed to be bringing back a Coke. He'd been gone for hours. 
and I heard Fergie Lewis and I turned around and I'm like, what is that? So, so that, that's point number one. Point number two was um, hearing Mudboy and the Neutrons, a Memphis supergroup, if you will, of unknown people to form an unknown band. And they caused a near riot at a Civic Blues Festival. And that really thrilled me. That was about a year and a half after I'd heard of Furry. And then about half a year after that, I went to Furry's house. That was the third point. So, like, that's kind of how I established where we are. This is what this book is about in this general area. And I want to start connecting some of the dots because there's a lot of dots to connect in here. And I think it's, you know, it crosses over um, not just music. um, Right. Bohemian culture, as you mentioned, versus the old bluesmen. Civil rights. Yeah. Um, It's a fascinating, you know, rich and poor. I mean, there's so many, this is bigger than a plane. I mean, this is. Don't leave out professional wrestling. wrestling. Hello. (laughs) You know, uh, when I got, when I was talking to Jim Dickinson and learned that, you know, the, that, that integration in Memphis, that uh, of civic buildings began at the auditorium with professional wrestling and a guy named Sputnik Monroe. I realized, okay, man, this is deep and important, you know, and, and it, and it's true. It does take that plane. It adds more dimension and depth to that plane, but all of that was part of it. Cowboy movies. That's what I tried to do was just, you know, I wasn't interested in the flatted fifth. I was interested in the empty fifth. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and there's so many firsts in this too, right? First, there's a lot of firsts and Memphis was on the scene of a lot of these firsts, which I found fascinating that I thought I was a student of Memphis and I felt like, Hey, I didn't, I didn't know that. So, uh, but before we go deeper, cause I've got to, you got to tell some of these stories in the book. Um, uh, what brought you to the 25th and what brought like third man books to the table to kind of want to reissue this and what's in this new edition? Okay, so the book first comes out in 1995. Favor and Favor puts out a beautiful hardcover and paperback. I guess as was the way after, uh, in those days, you know, after five years or so, they terminated the rights. I got the rights back, promptly sold it to Simon & Schuster, who put out a nice paperback. And then, I don't know when Lightning Press came in, the sort of instant printing of books where you could do small batches, you know, reasonably economically do small batches. The good thing there is, you know, and so for several years, I really enjoyed that my book stayed in print, you know, easy to get around the world through Simon & Schuster. But the problem was it looked like they were printed on a photocopier low on toner. And over the years, that really began to eat at me. You know, here's this beautiful book. The pages, you can't even read the text on the page, forget deciphering the, what the photographs were. And as about two years back, as the 25th anniversary was approaching, I looked at my contract. I realized I had an escape clause. You know, my agent said, either you make a proper pressing of the book or you give back the rights. They gave back the rights. Third man had approached me a few years back and, you know, cause they wanted to do something. They were just starting their press and I was fans of theirs. They were fans of mine. And Chet, the uh, editor of their press, said, you know, anything you want to do? And I said, hey, man, I've always wanted to do a collection of short stories, of short, shorter pieces called Rent Party. And he said, let's do it. 
So I said, great, I got to get out of my, I have an obligation to my previous publisher. Um, they're never going to pick up a collection of essays. Let me, let me, you know, get, jump that hurdle. I'll get back to you. And I had to go back and say, Chet, it's the strangest thing, man. <laughs> but the publisher, uh, you know, made a really genuine offer here on my book. It's, it's enough money, so much money more than yours, you know, that I know you can't match it. You're welcome to, but, uh, you know, I wound up going to Bloomsbury with Memphis Rent Party. So when I got the rights back for this, Third Man was already on my mind. Right. That makes sense. So Differences in this edition. I did about probably 15 new interviews, about 10 of those with women. After the book first came out, I got a lot of letters from people would pull me aside at gigs and say, you know, man, it's a great book and all, but I'm not in it. So it's really not complete. And you just have to accept that. But one letter hung with me for 25 years. Linda Crosswaith Terry wrote and said, you write about the husband and wife puppet duo and my husband's all over the book. I'm the wife and I'm not mentioned. My second husband, you write about him, you know, throughout the book, he did the Dewey Phillips research. I did that research alongside him. I'm not in the book. Mm. You know, she cited Marion Keisker, who was Sam Phillips' assistant, who urged Sam to consider Elvis Presley. And she cited Abigail Adams, founding father John Adams' uh, wife, who told him, remember the ladies. And basically, that's what she told me, remember the ladies. So I, she was my first interview, and I interviewed about 10 more women and and feathered in their uh, perspectives. Well, I remember one thing that Linda told me was that when she was working that husband-wife puppet duo, and that was 1966, she told me this in 2019, that that job was the only time in her life she's ever been paid equal pay. Yeah. I mean, that's astounding, wow. you know? So that stuff's all feathered in through the book. And then there's a new foreword by a young writer named Hanif Abdurraqib. I don't really know how to pronounce his name. Great writer and poet. Really honored to have him give an introduction alongside Peter Goralnik. Yeah. I added a new introduction and a new last chapter of like what's going on in Memphis the past 25 years. And then a massive like 40 pages of books and films and records and discs and stuff to pursue for further yeah, interest. That was that is pretty thick in the back there. So yeah. So back to the origins. So you, from the Rolling Stones, you see Furry Lewis play. And somehow as a teenager, you have the audacity to locate him and, and go visit him. Yeah. Somewhat mind-blowing. What, what, were, you, what were, your, were your thoughts as a teen, if you can recall, on, on connecting? What was mind-blowing was after Furry Lewis appears as the, you know, basically the opening act for the Rolling Stones in front of 50,000 people. Two years or so later, he shows up on the porch of my high school where, where a hat is passed and we all tip him for playing during our lunch break. And I was like, wait a minute, how did this happen? You know? And so I asked around, I was in 10th grade and I asked around and I got an upperclassman's name and he said, oh, here, I called him up. Here's his phone number. And so I walked over to the school phone. And I called Furry Lewis. I said, hey, can I come visit? He said, sure. I said, uh, can I bring you anything? He said, you can bring me a pint of 10 high and a raw Wendy's hamburger, you know? And so let me say I was in 10th grade and I couldn't drive. It was easier to buy the, for me to buy the pint of 10 high than it was to get a ride to his neighborhood. And, and the raw hamburger was all about, you know, he didn't have teeth, so he want, it was easier to gum. <laughs> when I ordered it at Wendy's, she said, well, can I cook it a little on each side? I said, sure, just a little on each side. <laughs> so I, I go to Furries, you know. Um, I guess an older friend took me there and we hung out. I got my license soon enough. I started going there often enough that he knew my name. His girlfriends knew my name. 
you know, um, it was just a different being in his house. I'd never been, I'm, I was middle-class, you know, solidly middle-class. Um, and, and furry was distinctly, you know, borderline poverty. So I'd never been in a borderline poverty home. And as startling as the music was, the life circumstances were also that different. And in retrospect, I'd like to believe that that's where my style or my outlook got formed, that it's the context of the music, much more than just the music itself. Right. Fascinating. And was it common there that these old bluesmen would show up in high schools playing at lunch hour? <laughs> Is that just an aberration? I learned that like Rufus Thomas had been out to my school. Like it was, it was a gig. It was a gig that people knew you could get kind of during the day. You know, of course this was different from like the proms and big dances and stuff, but it was something on, of, of an aberration. But at the same time, you know, like I edited this uh, mid seventies video footage that William Eggleston, the photographer had shot. It's called Stranded in Canton. And one of the scenes there is of Furry Lewis playing at a garden party, you know. So for the blues men and women, these kind of society gigs were, I think, a regular thing that you kind of caught them as they came. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about um, the expansion of the blues through, you know, first off, you had um, WDIA down there, the radio station, which kind of became the first kind of manned by African-American DJs. Is that true? Yes. First in the country to have a full staff, full on-air staff of African-Americans. Wow. And when it went on with one disc jockey, one African-American disc jockey, it, well, let me say, it went on as the sixth station on the dial, very similar to the other five stations. And the owners quickly learned that five was enough. You know, basically no one was interested in their new station playing what everyone else was playing. And it was a last ditch effort. You know, they did it to save their own investment. They said they realized that the large Memphis has always been, you know, about 50-50 black and white. Um, they realized that this large disregarded community might be their saving grace. And when they put Nat D. Williams on the air the first time, they immediately got bomb threats. Mm. You know, it was not welcome. However, they also quickly found they got advertisers. And, the, you know, the bombs didn't appear, but the advertising dollars did. And in short order, WDIA was a full staff of African-American disc jockeys who were not allowed to work the board in the beginning. Whites had to work the board and African-Americans were the voice. You know, so it was a, it was a step forward. It wasn't wasn't as clean a step as you want it to be, you know, but it was a real step forward. And that's kind of how these things work. It was progress. Right. And in the story there around that, you know, you talked about you know, just to set the stage of segregation there. There's a story around WDIA where they reported the story of a, a white woman getting in a car crash and the nearest ambulance yeah. was a black ambulance and the black ambulance couldn't touch a white woman to take her to the hospital. You had to wait for a white ambulance and she died in that process or something. And the story is told by, I love to say his full name, Reverend Bishop Dwight Gatemouth Moore, who was a disc jockey, gospel disc jockey on WDIA. DIA, and also a well-known former R&B shotter who'd had an onstage conversion. And so he tells the story on the air and says that as a result of that story, the policy got changed. It's amazing to hear these kind of things of how uh, individuals, Sputnik Monroe, Gatemouth Moore, could change society. Mm, fascinating. And then on to the other station on another, WHBQ, and this character of a DJ, this Dewey Phillips guy, um, which... 
I mean, it, it's the most insane stuff I was reading there. What was going on? I mean, Lord Michaels would have had a heart attack if the show was on the air. And yeah, yeah. The fact that he would just cut from like American Bandstand and put the footage on his show, like when Jerry Lee Lewis was there, it's like, what is going? You got to tell us a little bit about this Dewey Phillips guy. So Dewey Phillips, no relation to Sam Phillips, but Dewey is the first disc jockey to play an Elvis Presley acetate on the air. It wasn't even a record yet. It was just an acetate. Dewey was the most popular disc jockey in town in the mid-1950s. As rhythm and blues was coming out, Dewey embraced it and became a record store salesman at uh, a W.T. Grant department store in town and sort of used that microphone as offensive as he was because he was nuts. He worked his way onto the WHBQ evening, you know, last last show of the day uh, R&B slot, quickly expanded it from 15 minutes to three hours. And soon enough, from a radio show to a, to a simulcast, we're talking the 50s here, simulcast radio and TV in the afternoon. And that's the, where it goes really nuts because the breaks are at different times. You know, a radio break is different from a TV break. And Dewey made the most of it. Dewey broke the fourth wall immediately on TV. He was all about breaking rules. And lots of kids here, Jim Dickinson, Don Nix, you know, the people who would go on to form to be the early rock and rollers here, basically the people who were in the audience when Elvis came out. That's kind of what my book's about, that audience. Those those people were all Dewey Phillips acolytes and Dewey liberated them. You know, Dewey said, hell no, I'm not doing, you know, at that time you would tune in, tune in now for the 15 minutes or, you know, 30 minutes of Easy listening, followed by 30 minutes of, you know, light country music. And then we'll hear some whatever. We just, you know, it was very programmed. And Dewey said, hell no, you're not going to hear the same thing every 30, you know, for 30 minutes. You're not going to, if he didn't like a record, he'd scratch it right off. You know, and uh, if he really liked it, he'd play it twice. Word is, he played like Hound Dog, Elvis Presley's Hound Dog, something like 17 times in a row. <laughs> you know, just couldn't get over it. So Dewey really was a major force in the uh, growth of rock and roll around the world through the influence he had on the Memphis kids. Right. And final point, as Dewey was rising in popularity, that's when American Bandstand came on the air. And if Dick Clark was Dick Clark, Dewey Phillips was Ernie Kovacs. You know, the, the old really uh, manic uh, TV host. So in a way, it was a duel. How, how are we going to present rock and roll music on TV? Are we going to do this nice, clean, you know, predictable Dick Clark thing that will help us sell detergent? Or are we going to go with this nutcase in the South, Dewey Phillips, who is completely unpredictable and you can't trust him? You know, Dewey Phillips would do beer commercials. He'd say, Falstaff, freeze it and eat it. Open up a rib and pour it in. You know, and so obviously in that battle, Dewey lost and soap and detergent won. Right, well, I read that whole story and then somewhere in it, I missed it. This show was on at four in the afternoon. <laughs> thinking, yeah. He goes on at night at first, and then he gets so popular, he goes for the after-school thing. Four in the afternoon? It's like everybody had to be on some kind of a drug. What was going on in Memphis? Um, yeah, it's the after-school milkshake for us. <laughs> so let's talk about the uh, mighty triumphant of uh, Stax and Sun and, uh, you know, even American Sound at the end of that yeah. period a little bit. And you're somewhat a 
what would I call you? A historian on stacks, right? You did a, is it yes. a documentary and a book or just a documentary on stacks? I made a, I made a documentary about stacks for uh, great performances, two hour documentary. And when it was done, uh, I said to my partners, um, you know, I'd already written books and made films and we were all moving on to other projects. I said, Hey guys, if y'all are done with all these already typed transcripts, why seems like to me it would be an easy setup for a book. If you don't mind, I'm going to use the transcripts for a book. They're like, Oh yeah, sure, sure. We're done. Seven years later, the book came out <laughs> and it was not easy. You know, it was a head start, but it was not easy. That's crazy. Um, and talk about how those three labels kind of played in the community. Um, kind of how they kind of stacked up against each other. I mean, I was surprised to read and I really didn't know this. Did, and this is skipping to, I guess I'm skipping to um, that uh, the Arden story. I didn't realize Fred Smith was a co-founder of Arden who founded FedEx. Is that true? Yeah. Did I read that right? Yeah, I didn't know that. You did. Yes, sir. In 10th grade. I don't know what it is about 10th grade, you know, but they were in 10th grade when they founded Arden Recording. Fred Smith, uh, John Fry and John King. And then uh, Fred Smith goes off to college and goes, guys, you know, I got this other idea. <laughs> I'm going to go start an overnight package delivery service. And, you know, John Fry, meanwhile, establishes the greatest uh, recording studio in the South. Wow. Just incredible. So back to the other labels, uh, our Stacks yeah. and our Sun and our American Sound. I mean, each had its own colorful start, um, whether it's Stacks behind the ice cream shop. Is that what that really was? Yes, it really was. Flipping hamburger, a, a dairy bar. So could you go in a little bit on each of those and you're from the book? Yeah, we have to start with Sun because Sun is the one that makes all the others possible. Sam Phillips is he's a mortician with an interest in radio engineering. He decides to pursue the radio engineering a little further. And, and one cool thing Sam told me was that when he was doing live broadcasts from the top of the Peabody Hotel, he would show up and these country swing bands would say, oh, so good to see you again, Mr. Phillips. We love the way you do sound. And he said, well, what's different about the way I do it? And they told him, you add more bass. And I thought that was really interesting in the 50s. You know, Sam was already knew that it was all about the bass. So um, Sam also realized that in this town that that's about, you know, half black, no one is tuned into the black musical expressions. So he sets up the Memphis Recording Service specifically hoping to record African-Americans, which the others in town would make fun of him. His friends would make fun of him, that he was mingling with these people, you know, because Jim Crow was really strong here. Segregation, the hate, this is a city and an art, art form really built on hatred. Blues music is the music of the disparaged and the reviled. And that's why when it becomes the voice of the nation as rock and roll, it's a real triumph. You know, it is a triumph from the outer edges going into the center of the country. It's a triumph of the disenfranchised voice becoming the voice of, of the nation. And that's Sam Phillips at work right there. So Sam, you know, starts to record. What's the one man band's name? Uh, Dr. Ross. And then... B.B. King comes in and Calvin Newborn, Finest Newborn, you know, he's got a real proper business going. Elvis Presley wants to sound like those guys. He wanders in. Mm. Suddenly Sam's got a hit record label, you know, and everybody else in town is going. By 1959, when Jim Stewart founds Satellite Records, that's going to quickly become Stax Records, he's in a country swing band and he's going, damn, man, 
Sam Phillips did this real easy. I'm going to do it. You know, it, it looks easy. People think they can do it. And uh, Jim Stewart, you know, steps into all the right dog do. He makes all these mistakes that lead to this perfect thing. He's set up initially in a dairy bar way out in the country, right next to a railroad track. So they have to give up that location because the trains are always ruining the recordings. And through a series of circumstances that, with the help of Chips Moman, who's a young, brassy guitarist and recording engineer, uh, they find this abandoned movie theater in South Memphis, set up shop there. Rufus Thomas walks in and suddenly stacks records goes from being Jim's taste was soft country crooning. And because he sets up in South Memphis and and Rufus Thomas walks in and Booker T. Jones walks in and all these people with feeling and soul walk in, Jim Stewart has to go find Ray Charles records in his sister's record shop at the front of the studio. She set up a little cash flow there, initially selling country records until she realized, hey, none of this audience wants country. Jim goes up front and listens to some Ray Charles, and he says, you know, it was like lightning hit him, and he never went back. So that's how Stax gets underway, and the thread is continued because that early engineer, Chips Moman, has a fight with Jim and walks out and quits and goes across town and says, you know, well, hell, if uh, Sam Phillips and Jim Stewart can do it, I'm going to do it. And he does it, you know, and through initially uh, teen bands like the Gentries and then soon the Box Tops, he becomes this world-renowned recording studio where all these hits are recorded. Dusty in Memphis, Wilson Pickett, Herbie Mann's Memphis Underground. What's his name? Neil Diamond. You know, it's just like endless. Dion Warwick. It's endless the hits that go on there. You said it was 120 chart-topping songs out of there between 67 and 71 out of American Sound? Now a disputed number, but uh, something like that. That number comes from one of the keyboardist's wife and then a guy I've been corresponding with over the past couple of years. Mm. He was trying to justify that number, I think, in a more condensed amount of time. And anyway, yeah, something like that. But still impressive enough. Astounding. Yeah, so even if it was 60, <laughs> if it went down to 60, it's still impressive. Heck and no. each one of these studios had their own in-house bands, exactly. basically, right? I mean, Booker T and the MGs at Stax, really? I mean, was that that was their home? That was their and home. And they interchanged between them based on how they were being tra- treated, or did everyone kind of stay loyal to that particular studio? Well, both in a way. Um, let's go to, let, let's do it in chronological order. Sun kind of develops a house band with, the Little Green Men, uh, Billy Riley and his band, uh, which initially included a piano player named Jerry Lee Lewis um, until he, you know, establishes himself. But this this core allowed the, allowed them to back, uh, allowed Sam to bring in vocalists and have a group he could depend on to back them. Then at Stax, Booker T and the MGs forms, and eventually... Um, Al Jackson will move himself back and forth between Stax and High Records, especially when Al Green comes around in the early 70s. Stax is in some kind of flux, and Al Jackson begins to do a lot of work at High and Stax. And then at American, there was an actual house band kind of having stolen two other house bands. He, uh, Chips combined these guys from another couple of recording studios in town and made this group that that was able to play on all these records. And that group, by the way, moves to Nashville in 1972 and 
plays on uh, a Waylon Jennings album that becomes the first double platinum country record, second ever double platinum record. And so it's the intersection of all this, right? East Arkansas, Mississippi Delta, um, Western Tennessee. Look, the infrastructure crops up there. And is that the reason why? Is it geographical, just like Memphis sat there on the Mississippi during, you know, becoming a great shipping port, really, I guess with cotton primarily? Is it because the infrastructure was there or the blues players, just the proximity? Is it geography? What was it? Man, that's the kind of thing that can cause fistfights. <laughs> I'm town. ready. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, Knox Phillips, Sam's older son and a great recording engineer, he said it was because of the energy of the Mississippi River. Dan Penn, a great songwriter, he said it was because of its sea level, you know, where it falls on in the sea level. And frankly, I don't know if it's above or below. You're on a bluff, um, right? So you're probably, you might be 20 feet above. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Dickinson said it was because of the smell of barbecue sauce in the air. <laughs> that sounds like Jim Dickinson. <laughs> I personally go with the uh, geography and the fact that for decades, Memphis was, it was 200 miles to Nashville. For a lot of these small towns, the bright lights of hope on the horizon literally was Memphis. So people were drawn there. And on the street, you did have this real mix of rural and urban and rich and poor and black and white. And I think it's the way that cauldron of cultures, the way those people rub shoulders. You know how crickets make noise by rubbing their legs together? I think the sound of Memphis is the shoulders of these diverse groups rubbing each other on the streets. Right. So look, at I could talk for probably three hours about this book with you, but I want to talk a little bit just about you as a creative person, um, as a writer, um, as a director, Mm -hmm. um, you do so many different things. I mean, look, you did um, Best of Enemies, that documentary about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I rewatched it prior to this election. And right. you know, it's just fascinating. And I don't know if you are married to this. There's a couple of arguments in there that, you know, that kind of set us on our course to where we are today with civil discourse and tribalism. And do you take that away from that or do you say not? Yeah, I think one of the key things in that movie when Sam Tannenbaum notes it's the beginning of identity politics. I think that has a lot to do with the forming of the tribes that will be this tribal warfare we're in now. I also think you have two very educated guys there arguing on a plane that's above the average viewer, right? Vidal quotes Pericles offhandedly. You know, right? I, I haven't heard Tucker Carlson say a four-syllable word ever, let alone a three-syllable <laughs> word. So I think it's interesting that, you know, where we go from a culture where those high-minded people, experts, if you will, are respected to the present where they're excluded. You know, now you vote for um, who do you want to have a beer with, right? Frankly, I kind of feel like my priorities for who's going to be president are not based on who I want to have a beer with. Right. You know, it's much more important things and other things. I don't want to be president. And frankly, I don't necessarily want someone like me to be president. So I think that Best of Enemies gets into a lot of the way we got to where we are in terms of tribalism, in terms of the uh, lack of civil discourse, especially, because that's what the show, that's what really happens in the movie. You know, the one thing is Buckley finally breaks, calls Gore Vidal. 
what does he say? Uh, now, listen, you queer, I'll sock you in the goddamn jaw and you'll stay plastered. That's his quote, right? So, you know, they didn't, on the delayed broadcast to the West Coast, they cut that. So goddamn and queer were so foreign to national TV at the time that they couldn't be said. And Vidal called uh, Buckley like a crypto fascist, right? Was that what kicked it off? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, yes. Yes, totally fair. What did he say? The only uh, crypto fascist or Nazi, I forget what he says exactly. Here's you. But that's because, you know, then if you want to go back, it's like, well, Buckley hasn't let him speak. He's constantly interrupting him. So it's, you know, and it goes back. And that's in the ninth meeting between the two. So that's why. There's nine of these things. There there was 10. 10. I mean, when we were figuring this out, it couldn't have been written better. It was like, wait a minute. Are you saying that there's this series of debates that begins with these two guys fairly civil obviously disliking each other fairly civil and it grows over 10 to where in the penultimate one there's a huge clash and then they come back for the final one and there's uh somewhat penitent about it you know it's like wow you know this is amazing and then paul newman's in the middle of it all right at the end i mean it's like what's going on here <laughs> i like to take credit i like to share the credit with my you know co-creator of that morgan neville but i really feel like that show was great because the material is great. I mean, you know, other people could have done it and maybe, you know, they could have done half as good as us and the material is great. You just have great material. And you won an Emmy for that. Yes. Um, How long did that take you to put together? I mean, was that a a ton of work or what sparked it for you? Was it the discourse that you saw going on or what was your interest? A local guy here in town, an old writer friend of mine, had been obsessed with those debates and through some hard work of his own in 2010, acquired a recording, a videotape of most of those debates. And he booked the art museum auditorium and ran it and said, just, you know, if you want to come watch these debates, come watch. We started talking about it afterwards. Everybody stayed, you know, no one got it to leave. Great conversation. And I was like, man, this should be a documentary. He wanted, he was working on a stage play. I said, Tom, Tom Graves, do you mind if I, uh, you know, take this and work on it as a documentary. I'd like your help, you know. He said, sure. I thought, man, the presidential, I said, in 2010, I said, this country is so divided and this documentary will represent that so well. We'll never have an election like the 2012 election. We have to get this on. Funding is going to be easy as hell. And we started taking it around for funding and everybody said, oh, this footage is great. This footage is great. But what does it have to do with today? And Morgan and I would leave these meetings and go, what are we not saying that people can't see how relevant this 50-year-old debate is to today? 2012 passes, no funding. We're like, well, it won't be as interesting in the midterm elections, and surely the healing in the country will have begun, but we'll aim for 2014. You know, damn, we still couldn't get funded. And to our dismay, general dismay, but movie delight, the country continued to, you know, separate. And so by 2016, we'd gotten funded and we got on just in time for that election. That is crazy. And I mean, and one part in there, though, like William Buckley at the end, his last show of Firing Line or whatever, and he, he was visibly like almost like hit in the stomach that this still existed. He thought these tapes had been destroyed or that's a story that's told. Yes, th- there was evidence that Buckley had sent people in to the ABC archive and pulled the tapes. And, and, and in fact, that particular tape doesn't exist. You know, ABC had lost it, quote unquote, lost it. 
But what Buckley didn't know was that a place in Nashville was set up to record all of news and current affairs type TV programming. So they had a copy and that's that's why it's in black and white and all the others are in color Mm. because it's what they had. But yeah, Buckley, I think, regretted that all his life. Vidal was gleeful about it. Yeah, he's just an Uh, agitator. (laughs) Yeah. I know I'm going long on all my stories with you, but Buckley was dead when we began it. Vidal was alive. We did do an interview at Vidal's house. Vidal purposely sabotaged the interview, afterwards invited us up for drinks, and we had drinks sitting around Vidal's bed. And we walked in the room, the uh, houseboy showed us into the room, and uh, Vidal is propped up against pillows, and he says, come in, boys, have a seat. There's three of us boys. And we look around, and there's no chairs. So <laughs> we wound up sitting around on Vidal's bed and had drinks. And, and having had drinks with Vidal, I can say that I think I would rather have drinks with Buck. <laughs> you know, look, I'm a gay man. And uh-huh. that's kind of what came across to me is like, look, I believe in the policies of what Gore Vidal was saying, but as a person, I didn't like, I couldn't relate to him. And I related much more to William F. Buckley. So I was questioning my own insanity as I rewatched it. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I mean, we all thought we would align ourselves that we'd be more friendly with Vidal because that was our leanings as well. But we had much more fun having drinks with him than we did interviewing him. We couldn't use a single thing from the interview. And also we didn't want to because it would it would throw an imbalance and we didn't have a, a similar interview with Buckley. It's that old thing you don't want to necessarily meet your heroes. You know, I, I really admired the artwork of Alex Chilton, but hanging out with him wasn't as much fun as, as playing his records. Right, right. So uh, one last question and I'll cut you loose. I mean, I seriously could do this for another three hours today, but I'm not going to torture you. As a writer, I mean, are there like, you know, it's, it's quite a discipline. I mean, are there methods and routines and how do you, I mean, and this book covers so much, um, just as an example, and this is 25 years ago. So I, I assume you think you've become a much better writer and maybe have some tricks of the trade that work better than when you wrote your first book. I'm just curious what type of methods you follow and what keeps you creative. Um, Good questions. Uh, I remember when I was writing, it came from Memphis. A college friend of mine came to visit and he was amazed that he would wake up every morning and hear me at the computer keyboard in the other room and amazed at the discipline I had. And I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, I had developed a discipline. I tell some of the stories in in my last book uh, called Memphis Rent Party. I, I see Memphis Rent Party as a bookend to It Came From Memphis. And so when I finished college, I took a job as a baker at night to work all night so I wouldn't go into to the nightclubs because I wanted to be a writer. I got off of the schedule of all my friends and that let me develop this writing discipline that has paid off in decades since. So I don't wake up every day and think, oh, I've got to write four hours or I've got to write 400 words or whatever. But I wake up every day and, and begin writing. You know, I begin working. I keep my ass in the chair. And, and that's really the secret. I don't have a day gig. I don't have a PhD. I don't have an MA. I can't teach at a college. So I, I have over time actually developed other avenues of income that allow me to take low paying liner notes jobs for things that I'm really interested in, you know, so I've achieved some kind of balance. Right. So curiosity and I mean, you obviously have some kind of a passion for history. Yes, completely untrained. And I have this real passion for Memphis that I think has to do with the hatred here. If I can understand the 
divisions in this city and what that and and the ramifications of that racist, classist line of thought, then that will help me understand the world. And that's kind of the way I've, I've approached it. And, and it's endless here. I mean, you know, I, you know, I've done, I don't know, seven or eight books and eight or 10 films, probably, uh, you know, 80 or 90% of all of that has to do with Memphis in particular. And I could do at least that much more again, if I live that long, you know, jukeboxes, the, the culture of coin operated machines. That is the untold story of popular music, how the jukebox operators control taste, you know. Well, that story in your book about that. Oh, I was fascinated by that. I wanted you to go so much further with that guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, Lester so, Williams. Yeah, so that makes perfect, perfect sense. And it's too bad with Memphis because I still feel when I'm there that it's, you know, there's still an extraordinary amount of people living in their own bubbles and there's still segregation amongst racial lines. I feel. Yes, I'm sorry. No, I want to hear the good news. I, I sounded really negative there. Go ahead. <laughs> when, when my kids were growing up, um, they were in the public schools and they brought home friends of all colors, creeds, race, you know, and thought nothing of it. And their friends thought nothing of it. And that really has reassured me that you know, when I was a kid, the man across the street, Mr. Cummings, I, he was probably in the Klan for all I knew. You know, mm. he I don't I don't remember how but I, I guess he used the N word all the time. You know, I knew as a seven year old, that man is an avowed racist. That was all around me. And for my kids, they've grown up completely differently. So it's taken a generation or two. But I do think that there is hope for the city. And I think that the legacy of the art even though that art required hatred in order to come to be, I think it can continue with a lot less hatred. You know, it can continue to inspire a lot of great okay, art. That, I, I'm going to leave it right there. That is wonderful. That's what I love to hear. And uh, everyone listening, the book is, it came from Memphis. It's the 25th anniversary edition. And uh, who knew Memphis was this debauched, but uh, read this book. <laughs> And you're going to learn, you're going to learn a little bit more about Memphis than you ever knew. Um, yeah, Robert, I look forward definitely. to coming to Memphis and getting some barbecue with you sometime and picking this up again. Okay. Sounds great, Nick. Stay healthy. Thank you very much. Appreciated it. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening this week. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com theradicalpod.com. You will find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, 